Good morning, everyone, and welcome to a Sunday special edition of A Vision for You. My name is Leah M., Recovered Compulsive Overeater, and the moderator for this morning's meeting. Today is Sunday, February 28, 2021. This year, ID numbers for Friday, February 26, are the following. For the 7 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,481. That's 16481. And for the 10 a.m. Eastern Big Book Study, 16,487. That's 16487. This morning, A Vision for You presents the rapacious creditor. Exhausted. Weary from countless vain attempts to control the uncontrollable, we are beaten into a state of reasonableness, and we come to the realization that we are doomed, cornered, exhausted, weary, worn out. Step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable is an admission of the central problem we face as compulsive overeaters. Our powerlessness over food and the unmanageable life that has resulted. Once we can admit our powerlessness, a door opens to the solution to our problem. As long as we deny our powerlessness, however, our problem cannot be solved. The first step is about admitting defeat in our battle with food and compulsive overeating. But step one is not merely an intellectual admission of powerlessness. It is an emotional acceptance of our powerlessness at the gut level. This acceptance of powerlessness and unmanageability is an experience the AA 12 and 12 refers to as utter defeat, bankruptcy, hopelessness, and hitting bottom. As the big book says, we learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost selves that we were alcoholics for us compulsive overeaters. This indeed is the first step in recovery. This morning, we'll be bringing to life step one from the AA 12 and 12. The essay will be elaborated upon by three recovered compulsive overeaters. We have Amy G. from Maryland, Matt J. F. from Kentucky, and Kathy Jo P. from Minnesota. So let's get started. Again, we're in the AA 12 and 12 on page 21, beginning with our first panelist, Amy G. Good morning, Amy. Good morning, Leah. Still hear me okay? Hear you well. Okay, great. Good morning. Thank you so much, Leah. Thank you, everyone on the line. Vision for you. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to share today. I'm so excited to talk about step one. and especially in the 12 and 12. Uh, just to qualify a little bit, I came into OA 
in March of 83, became recovered in December, uh, December 7th of 1987. And I have been recovered since by the grace of God and these 12 steps. Just to, just to say what recovered means for me, I'll take the definition straight from Overeaters Anonymous, which is refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. And I like to add, as one of our beloved members always says, and doing so happily. So I'm refraining from compulsive eating, which means that I do not ingest my trigger foods, which are sugar, high fat volume and flour. I have a food plan that I follow. I know where the line in the sand is for my abstinence. And then my compulsive food behaviors are down by working the 12 steps. I refrain from my binging and purging and the behaviors, thoughts, feelings, and actions that drive me to pick up the first bite. And again, we're going to drill down on the physical allergy and the mental obsession, but that's what I am refraining, refraining from and doing so happily. I have neutrality with the food. I'm not white knuckling the food. Um, and I am not basically in a gist. I am not eating compulsively and I am not thinking about eating compulsively. And I'm so grateful to this program. It has transformed and saved my life. My worst, um, just to, since you can't see me, basically, my um, I've run the full gambit of this disease. My top weight was 170. I just stopped getting on the scale at that point, probably put on another 15 or 20. They say the three Ds of the disease, denial, delusion, and defiance. I just didn't get on the scale. I'm also a compulsive exerciser. I went through anorexia as well. My lowest weight was 102. That's about, um, you know, 25 pounds, 30 pounds of what my normal weight is. But by far and away, my worst manifestation was the bulimia, uh, binging and purging 10 and 12 times a day. I am a bottle in the bag, living underneath the bridge, compulsive overeater. And, um, you know, I hit the lottery when it came to this disease. But this brings us to step one. And in hindsight, I can look back and say that I am grateful, and I'm grateful for that bottom, and I'm grateful for all of that because it brought me to my admission of powerlessness, which is where we are today, drilling down on step one. Step one here in the AA 12 and 12 on page 21 says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. I forgot to start my timer. I don't know how I'm going to jam in this into 17 minutes, but I will do my best. Okay, who cares to admit complete defeat? Practically no one, of course. Every natural instinct cries out against the idea of personal powerlessness. It is truly awful to admit that food, alcohol in hand, we have warped our minds into such an obsession for destructive drinking and eating that only an act of providence can remove it from us. And so I'm just going to go a paragraph at a time here for the next four paragraphs. And basically what stands out for me to, uh, you know, here is, is instinct. Every natural instinct cries out. And when I look at the dictionary, it says instinct is unreasoning, prompting to a mode of action without prior experience or instruction. I mean, I didn't, wasn't born and grow up and said, here, I'm going to try to be powerless for the rest of my life. My instinct, I didn't need an instruction manual for that. I thought in order to control my life, I had to be powerful. I had to make sure I could control my life. I didn't want to be powerlessness. That was not my goal that I aspired to, to be powerless and crazy with food. So I know for me that every instinct cried out against that admission. And it was hard. It took the beating and the pummeling of this disease to get me to overlook that instinct that said, okay, I truly am powerless. And here it says, food in hand, we have warped our minds with such 
an obsession. To me, warped means I'm not coming back from that. That means, you know, the pickle is not going back to being the cucumber. At some point, I crossed the line where this obsession took over, and there was no way that I was ever going to come back from it, as well as the physical allergy that when I stick certain substances in my mouth, for me, sugar, high fat, flour, and volume, that I trigger a phenomenon, which is a phenomenon of craving. That's the allergy, a phenomenon of craving where I cannot stop. And then I have such an obsession that only an act of providence, to me, the act of divine intervention, these 12 steps, because you see, power is my dilemma. I have lost the power and I need power. And so for me, when we talk about obsession, what is the obsession? Well, it talks about it on page 30 in the big book, in the chapter more about alcoholism. The idea is that somehow, someday, he will control, control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. That is my obsession. I have warped my mind into constantly thinking and trying to control that somehow, some way, someday, I'm going to be able to control my eating and eat like a normal person. Well, I am not a normal person because of the twofold nature of this illness. I'm not only not normal, I am crazy. Crazy on the inside when it comes to this disease. It says here, no other kind of bankruptcy is like this one. Alcohol has become the rapacious creditor, leads us of all self-sufficiency and uh, leads us of all self-sufficiency and all will to resist its demands. Once this stark fact is accepted, our bankruptcy as going human concerns is complete. So when I think of the rapacious creditor, I looked up the definition for that, and it's it's predatory, predatory, excessively grasping. That reminds me so much of the mental obsession. I feel like it lurks in the background, finding an opportunity, constantly on the lookout. Someone said once that their obsession was like a sniper in the bushes just waiting to take us out. And I love that definition because that's how my mental obsession was. I never knew when it would grab me and take me. Well, all of a sudden, I thought the best idea I had all day was to put the food in my mouth. And then the creditor. I think of a bill collector. I don't know about you all, but I racked up a substantial amount of debt in my compulsive eating. And um, I, when I would get those calls from the creditors, they always wanted more. They always wanted more. And that was what it is for me when I ignite that physical allergy. Always wanting more. There was never enough. And um, when Bill talks about obsession... I think we need to pay attention. There's a number of different ways that he talks about obsession, the mental twist, the mental phenomenon, delusion, illusion, insane thinking. This is what this mental obsession is. And I, I think he just uses those different words. So keep an eye out for those as we read through the paragraph. So let's move on. But upon entering AA, we soon take quite another view of this absolute humiliation. We perceive that only through utter defeat are we able to take our first steps towards liberation and strength. Our admissions of personal powerlessness finally turn out to be firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives may be built. They may be built. You know, I think that Bill is so precise, like a surgeon, on how he writes this step 
and how he writes. You know, he'll, he'll write two or three paragraphs that basically nail it in the coffin about our disease and how powerless we are. And then he goes, but, 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 and then he'll throw in hope. You know, this disease, we are hopeless, not helpless, that there, are, there is a way out and there is a firm bedrock upon which happy and purposeful lives can be built. And it is via this program, via these 12 steps, but it has to come through this admission of powerlessness. I go on. We know little good can come of any alcoholic who joins AA unless he has first accepted his devastating weakness and all its consequences. Until he so humbles himself, his sobriety, if any, will be precarious. Of real happiness, he will find none at all. Prove beyond immense experience, this is the one of the facts of AA life. The principle that we shall find no enduring strength until we can again first admit defeat is the main taproot from which our whole society has sprung. So he says, but, but, but there is hope. But just in case you're thinking about trying it your way again, let me nail it into the coffin, put the nail in the coffin again. You know, defeat. How many times have we heard the word defeat already in these paragraphs? Admit complete defeat. And then here, utter defeat. And we go on for him to say defeat, again, is the main taproot. And when I look up the word taproot, it's the central element. Without this admission of powerlessness, without this utter defeat, it is the complete foundation of this program. I can't move on from that because if I don't think I'm powerless, I am going to revert back to my instincts and try to be powerless, try to be powerful. Once again, I'm going to want to take control. If there was any way that I thought I could have done my compulsive overeating on my own, trust me, I would have tried it. And they talk about this on page 59 in the big book. I mean, the two, the two pieces of literature complement each other so well. On page 58 to 59, it says, remember that we deal with alcohol, cunning, baffling, powerful. Without help, it is too much for us. But there is one who has all power, that one is God. May you find him now. Half measures availeth nothing. We stood at the turning point. We asked his protection and care with complete abandon. And I think he says complete abandon for a reason. I needed to completely abandon any and all ideas that there was any way that me, myself, and I, of my own will, knowledge, or power could beat this disease. Human intellect, experience, knowledge, willpower was not sufficient for me to deal with this disease. And, I, you know, I don't know about y'all, but when I sponsor, one of the things that I do, talking about defeat, is I ask sponsees to write their story of defeat. Who won the war of compulsive overeating? I ask them to write a compulsive overeating history so that we can drill down on how defeated we actually are. And then I frankly ask them, who won the war? You know, there's a reason why Bill is using the word defeat, using the word defeat over and over and over again. Oh, and one thing I forgot, on page 21, it says, of real happiness, he will find none, none at all. Abstinence is not enough. When we talk about real happiness, to me, that's refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors. That means I'm not eating compulsively, but I'm not even thinking about eating compulsively. That's the beauty of this program is by the grace of God and these 12 steps, I am empowered through God's grace 
and the work that we do where I can be at peace and have neutrality with food. And when I have neutrality with food, then I can find real happiness. I can find contentment. I can find peace. That doesn't mean that the world revolves and is perfect and I'm tiptoeing through the tulips, but I'm now equipped with a different mode to live my life to find peace. Food never got me that. Food never will. Once a compulsive overeater, always a compulsive overeater. But now we get to the crux, the main paragraph here to me that says, why am I powerless? When first challenged to admit defeat, most of us revolted. We had approached AA expecting to be taught self-confidence. Then we had been told that so far as alcohol is concerned, self-confidence was no good, whatever. In fact, it was a total liability. Our sponsors declared that we were the victims of a mental obsession so subtly powerful that no amount of human willpower could break it. There was, they said, no such thing as personal conquest of this compulsion by the unaided will. Relentlessly deepening our dilemma, our sponsors pointed out that our increasing sensitivity to alcohol, an allergy, they called it, the triant, the triant alcohol wielded a double-edged sword over us. First, we were smitten by an insane urge that condemned us to go on drinking, and then by an allergy of the body that ensured we would ultimately destroy ourselves in the process. Few indeed were those who, so assailed, had ever won through in single-handed combat. It was a statistical fact that alcoholics almost never recovered on their own resources. And this had been true, apparently, ever since man had first crushed, crushed grapes. So what is this paragraph saying? It's saying, why am I powerless? Now, I, I, I spent my first five years in Overuse Anonymous. I was willing to admit I was powerless, but I didn't understand what that mental obsession was about. I didn't understand the twofold nature of the physical allergy and the mental obsession. Bill calls it here a double-edged sword. You know, when you have a double-edged sword in combat, you can do twice the amount of damage because there is a cutting point on each side of the sword. So it cuts while it's going in and it cuts while it's coming out. It's brutal, and that's the way this disease is. Suicide on the layaway plan, it is ravages us, ravaged me emotionally, spiritually, and physically to the point that I wanted to die. It talks about an insane urge. That is what I had, an insane urge. Let me give you some examples of this mental obsession. My mental state, my mental obsession prior to eating, because my problem was not stopping. I could stop, but I could never stay stopped because of that mental obsession, that mental obsession, that mental twist, that delusion that somehow I could control my eating and be a normal eater. So here, if we look at the crux of the problem, that's what it talks about on page 35. The crux of the problem is my mental state. Um, I can give you some examples. You know, some of my binges were just premeditated, premeditated, calculated. I didn't care anymore. Make it all stop. Those were pretty clear to me. Stop the world. I want to get off. You know, all reason to, to, for consequences, nothing came into my mind. I just wanted to a numb. That was one of my mental states. Another mental state was this elusive chase of moderation. Oh, that was so killer to me. They talk about subtle, 
they, when you define subtle, it's, it's, it says so delicate and precise to be difficult to analyze or describe. To me, I kept thinking somehow, some way, I could use some form of moderation with my binge foods, not understanding that the allergy would always make me want more and more and more. But I kept thinking, again, it was my thinking that was so warped that somehow I could stay on a diet, but then what would I do? I'd celebrate by binging. Does that make sense? Of course not. It's insane. Another one is, you know, uh, I'll never forget this one. When you have that insane urge, I, I stopped at a gas station. You remind me of Jim or Fred when he stops at the place where to get a sandwich at the bar. You know, I could have put the gas in my car what, just at the pump, but no, I had to go in and use the bathroom at the gas station. No, not really. But in there were my favorite binge roads. And I remember as I sat in my car, I felt like there was this third person saying, Amy, don't go into the store. Don't go into the store, Amy. Don't go into the store, Amy. You know what's in there, the candy machine. Don't go into the store. And I watched myself get out of the car, put the pump into the, in the gas tank, and then walk into the store. And then I said to myself, Amy, don't walk near the candy. Don't walk near the candy. Amy, 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 you know what this does to you. This is me yelling at myself. Amy, Amy, don't do it. And yet I walk over to the candy machine. Amy, Amy, don't put the money in. I mean, this went on until I had the food in my hand, back in the car, sticking the food in my mouth, crying, going, why? Why, God, why? I have two more minutes here. Okay, and then the worst, the worst example of this is the being five bites into the binge, going, how the hell did I get here? To me, this disease, this mental obsession is in my unconscious, lurking, waiting with that type, that type of warped thinking. I can't tell you how many times I sat pounding on the freezer, looking at the ice cream, grabbing it, shoving it down my throat, going, how did this happen? I didn't understand with all the willpower, with all the knowledge that I had, even in Overeaters Anonymous, why I was still doing this to myself. Again, in the big book, we go through a number of examples of the difference between the regular eater, the regular drinker, and the compulsive eater and the, and the alcoholic. And to me, I heard a speaker said that made so much clarity to me. It said, the difference between the hard eater and the compulsive overeater is sufficient reason. You see, when the hard eater has sufficient reason, like I'm going to lose my job if I keep doing this. I'm going to have to get a divorce if I keep doing this. They can moderate because they're using sufficient reason to stop doing what they're doing. But because of the mental twist that I have, sufficient reason for me is to eat. If I'm going to lose my job, I'm going to eat more. Sufficient reason is more reason for me to eat. You see, I lack sufficient reason. This disease and this mental obsession robs me of my ability to reason. And that's what it does to me. Before I even have that food in my mouth, the mental obsession drives me there and the physical allergy keeps me there. So just to wrap up, I'm going to say, I had my sponsor say, read this, read this step, and I want you to write down all the things that this disease does to you based on what it says here. So if I look at it, these four paragraphs, it tells me that this disease bleeds me of all self-will and self-sufficiency. It bankrupts me as far as going human, full of shame, remorse, and guilt. 
It creates and faces me again and again because I'm powerless to stop absolute humiliation. It destroys my confidence and it condemns me to destroy myself. But like Bill, I will say, but, 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 there is hope. Because upon this firm bedrock of powerlessness, if I'm willing, if I choose, only I can make that choice to admit powerlessness. Upon that firm bedrock, happy and a happy and purposeful life can be built through these 12 steps. But it all stops with putting down the food, admitting, choosing to admit powerlessness, and moving through the work of the 12 steps. And with that, I will pass. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Amy G. Continuing with our presentation, The Rapacious Creditor, we are in the AA 12 and 12, step one, page 22 now, the second paragraph, and Matt J.F. will bring those paragraphs to life. Good morning. Thank you, Matt. Good morning, Leah. Thank you so much. Uh, this is Matt J.F., as in junk food, or as I prefer, joint fellowship. Uh, I live in Kentucky, although that's not where I'm from. Um, I don't know why it feels important to say that. So I, I, I'm going to – I'll just say I did not uh, script what I'm about to say, so I'll be as surprised as you are, maybe just before. Um, and part of the reason was that I knew that what I wanted to say would be shaped by what I heard, and it was. And, Amy, thank you for – that uh, remarkable uh, explication of those paragraphs and your experience. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm also going to qualify in quickly, and I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I wound up in this program because everyone's experience is unique. Um, mine's a little bit bonkers to me in some ways and very much a God thing, and, and I think it's a good object illustration of what these paragraphs are about. These paragraphs are about reframing what it means to be alcoholic, to be a compulsive overeater, so that more people could identify in sooner before more havoc was wreaked, before more destruction was wrought. And that is one of the most amazing things about this program to me is that we don't actually have to have our lives almost ended before they can be saved. Um, so, and, and a big part of that is by sharing our experience, strength, and hope. So let me qualify quickly. Um, I am 50 years old recently. I'm also two years old in my abstinence recently, uh, in the last week. Uh, I was born at a normal weight and uh, every day after that was downhill and up the scale, up through, you know, the chunky baby sizes to the husky boys sizes to the portly young men's sizes to the big and tall stores, which became the only place that I could find clothes that remotely fit. Um, there were two words that sort of governed my self-identity, smart and fat. And because smart could never fix fat, I felt like an abject failure every day of my life. Now, I, that wasn't happening on a conscious level, um, but it absolutely shaped how I was in the world and how the world seemed to be. 
my top, I'm five foot eight. Um, I have brown eyes that will become relevant later. Uh, and my top weight in 2003 was 380 pounds. Uh, and I recently shared some photographs of me at that weight and the weight uh, that I sort of stabilized at, which is about 120 pounds lower. And it doesn't even look like me to me. It doesn't look like me to other people, but it was definitely me. So I had room-wide gastric bypass surgery, the kind where they, you know, reroute your small intestine and everything, and uh, and and stabilized, as I said, at around 250 to 70 pounds, uh, still five foot eight, for about uh, 16 years. Um, and I know I'm a true compulsive overeater, and I've known it for a long time because there was a time in the in a therapist's office that I had a sudden revelation, and that sudden revelation was that um, I said, Tony, I really think that uh, that I eat until I'm physically uncomfortable so that I don't have to deal with my unpleasant feelings. And I remember him sort of looking at me sadly and, and, say, and with a smile on his face and saying, I think you're right. And I said, well, this changes everything. And nothing changed. Nothing changed until February 23rd of 2019 when uh, I was doing research for my job. And this is, this is an important part of my story when it comes to reframing and what it means to, to recognize a compulsive overeater because I thought, and I had said this out loud, I thought that OA was BS, except I didn't say BS. And I thought that to say that step one applied to me, these are actual quotes from my actual life. We admitted we were powerless over food, that our lives had become unmanageable. Okay, if you're anorexic or bulimic, you weigh 900 pounds, or like you're gonna binge until you burst something, fine. Your life is unmanageable. But if you're me, go F yourself. Except I didn't say F. So that was the attitude that I brought into my day on February 23rd of 2019, when for reasons having nothing to do with looking for a solution to a problem I didn't think it was possible for me to have, I wound up through the grace of God and Google listening to a big book step study that was for OA instead of AA and listening to Laurie C. talk about his experience, strength, and hope. And when I heard him say, for me, there are some foods that once I start, I can't stop, and I can't stop from starting. And my brain suddenly, I didn't, I didn't even pause to ask the question. My brain rattled off eight foods that were like that for me. And I was driving a car at the time. And I remember just gripping the steering wheel and thinking, oh, my God, I think I might be a compulsive overeater. So that was February 23rd of 2019, and on February 24th, I finished the drive in that step study. And on that night at home, I made a list of those foods and wrote it down. And on the morning of February 25th, 2019, and this is the only way I know how to say it, I just woke up as a person who didn't eat those foods anymore. And I haven't ever since. And I'm still 5'8". 
but this morning I weighed about 215 pounds, not 250. And here's the thing. Um, I didn't need to eat myself to death or hate myself to death before I was able to find recovery in this program. And that's what these paragraphs are really about. So I'll go through the, the paragraphs and then uh, return to a little more of why it feels so on point for me. So as Amy just told us about the tyrant alcohol wielding that double-edged sword, and I love that, well, I love that visceral image of the sword cutting on the way in and the way out. And that was definitely me. So the paragraph begins, in AA's pioneering time, none but the most desperate cases could swallow and digest this unpalatable truth. I, lo I love the use of, you know, gustatory imagery in that, in that sentence for us, really rings true. Even these last gaspers often had difficulty in realizing how hopeless they actually were. But a few did. And when these laid hold of AA principles with all the fervor with which the drowning seas life preservers, they almost invariably got well. That is why the first edition of the book Alcoholics Anonymous, published when our membership was small, dealt with low-bottom cases only. Many less desperate alcoholics tried AA, but did not succeed because they could not make the admission of hopelessness. So what, what Bill is saying here is, we all basically nearly died. And it took that experience to get us to the point of desperation, to be out of ideas, to be beaten into a state of reasonableness, where we would grab the life preserver. We had to realize we were about, not just like we were gonna drown, we were drowning, but we were literally about to go under before we grabbed the life preserver. And so in a way, what happens next is kind of about a numbers game. Because if you're, if you're in the business of saving lives, which Bill and, and the pioneers of AA were, the, the more people you can reach as they're about to drown, the more people you can help. But wouldn't it be better if you could reach the people who were going to drown sooner, before they were at that point of state of desperation? And so the next paragraph begins. It is a tremendous satisfaction to record that in the following years, this changed. Alcoholics who still had their health, their families, their jobs, and even two cars in the garage began to recognize their alcoholism. As this trend grew, they were joined by young people who were scarcely more than potential alcoholics. They were spared that last 10 or 15 years of literal hell the rest of us had gone through. Since step one requires an admission that our lives have become unmanageable, how could people such as these take this step? I'm just going to continue through the next paragraph and then circle back. It was obviously necessary to raise the bottom the rest of us had hit to the point where it would hit them. By going back in our own drinking histories, we could show that years before we realized that we were out of control, that our drinking even then was no mere habit, that it was indeed the beginning of a fatal progression. To the doubters, we could say, perhaps you're not an alcoholic after all, 
why don't you try some more controlled drinking, bearing in mind, meanwhile, what we've told you about alcoholism. So this is all about reframing. It's about reframing the disease from I'm about to die to knowing that I can look at my life today and know I'm going to die. It's the difference between I'm drowning and I am certain that one day I will drown. It's about the difference between needing a life preserver in the moment of my life about to end and realizing that I need to learn to swim. This attitude brought immediate and practical results. It was then discovered that when one alcoholic had planted in the mind of another the true nature of his malady, that person could never be the same again. Following every spree, he would say to himself, maybe these A's were right. After a few such experiences, often years before the onset of extreme difficulties, he would return to us convinced he had hit bottom as truly as any of us. John Barleycorn himself had become our best advocate. So this whole thing is about reframing. It's about reframing from my life is ruined, please help me, to my life is going to be ruined, please help me. And if you, it's, again, it's a numbers game. If you look at the number of people in the world whose lives will be ruined by our disease, eventually, it's a much bigger number than the ones who are about to die in the next moment. And that's why my story sort of feels very right for this. I once wrote about um, that I feel like sometimes, so, so we hear in the rooms a lot, you must be out of ideas. You must be beaten into a state of reasonableness. You must be in a state of true desperation. And then and only then will this work. And the question that I wonder is, does the bottom create the conditions for recovery? Or does the decision to begin recovering represent the bottom? Because I'll tell you, when I found my way into it, like I recognize that those things are true for most people. But if there's anyone on this line today who is waiting to be out of ideas, who is waiting to be in a state of reasonableness, who is wondering whether they've hit their bottom. Maybe just start. The difference, one key difference between our disease and the disease of alcoholism is, and I love um, that, that Amy referenced this, suicide on the layaway plan. To advise an alcoholic to just, maybe just start. See if you can get sober. Start working the steps. The danger there is that if an alcoholic relapses, a life could be in sudden risk. That danger may also be true for us, but probably much less likely. If, if, if I had heard Laurie C. say those words, which is like the doctor's opinion in 13 words, for me there are some foods that once I start, I can't stop, and I can't stop from starting. If I had thought instead, I wonder if I'm really at my bottom, let me wait and see. 
I don't think I'd be recovered today. What needed to happen was that I just need, I didn't need to be enthusiastic. Willingness and enthusiasm are not the same thing. I just needed to be willing. I needed to be at 50% plus one. I needed to be willing to make that list of foods that I knew that once I started, I couldn't stop and I couldn't stop from starting. I needed to be willing to wake up as someone who didn't eat those foods anymore. I didn't need to be willing to not eat them. And I, don't, I know that's a fine point, but I don't know how to say it any differently. I didn't need to be happy to leave my comfy apartment on a Thursday night, which happened three days later, and go to a freaking meeting. I'm not a joiner. I just needed to do it. So in closing, what I'll say is, if you are listening to my words, now or ever, and you think, I'm not sure I'm at my bottom, maybe just start. Maybe just start and recognize that the likelihood that if you can put together a couple of days of abstinence and begin working the steps, it doesn't need to be forever. You don't know if it can be forever. All you can know is what's happening next. And if what happens next is you're working the steps, the worst thing that happens is probably just that your life gets slightly better. Even if you relapse the next day or the day after that. You keep coming back until you learn to swim. We're lucky. If I relapse, it's not very likely that a life will end right away. That's a luxury, but take advantage of it. Just begin. Don't wait for desperation. Don't wait for your bottom. They raised it for us. That's why they raised the bottom. It's never too soon to make that choice and start learning to swim. And that's sort of how I became recovered. It was just by, and I mentioned I just had two years, and I'll wrap up by saying this. We make a big deal out of anniversaries in this program, and there's a good reason for that. It's important to recognize someone for suiting up and showing up every single day for a lot of days in a row. So viewed one way, two years is awesome. But I prefer to view it as it was just one day at a time, the 730th day in a row. That's how I recover. One day, one choice at a time but I can't continue recovering if I don't just start. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you so much, Matt J.S. Continuing bringing to life this essay on step one in the AA 12 and 12 is Kathy Jo P. from Minnesota. We're now on page 24, first paragraph. Kathy Joe, star one to unmute.
Kathy Jo P, star one to unmute. Good morning, Leah. This is Kathy Jo P. Can I be heard? Indeed, you can. I had to redial in, and you know, it feels like it relates to my long journey of getting here. It was not easy, yet I know I qualified at a very young age. Um, I'm going to start with that because my heart was just racing just now when I had to redial. But at age nine, a boy at the swimming pool called me fat. And I came home that night and I, after I got into bed and I tiptoed into my mom's room and I tapped her on the hand and I said, mom, mom, I'm fat. And she said, don't worry about it, honey, go back to bed. Everyone has their cross to bear. And I literally thought at that moment that I would live my life carrying the cross of being fat. And I would have to stay there. My dad, I believe, died at this disease at age 49. He weighed well over 300 pounds. He told us many, many times, I'm going to die young. And he died young. When I was 14, I went to Weight Watchers, and I followed the diet to a T, absolutely perfectly, for nine months. And I believe when I got to the point of being completely at a bottom when I came back to OA in 2016, that a huge part of my disease was that I followed that diet perfectly in 1976 and I think I thought somewhere somewhere that willpower is tucked aside that I had in 1976 when I was able to follow that diet perfectly so not only was I chasing the food and the happiness that I found in bitter honey candy bars etc but I was looking for the happiness that I found, the high that I found in being able to beat the food. So I beat the food in 1976 and I went from 179 pounds to 124. And on day three of being at Go Weight, the Weight Watcher leader gave me some foods to put back in. And within four days, I was off with a vengeance and I was eating, and I ate my way all the way up to 231 pounds senior year. And I came to these rooms in 1981 because I didn't want to be fat. And I remember seeing a person sitting across the room from me, and she was 5'8", I'm 5'8", Matt, and she was blonde, and she was at go weight, and I was not. So they said, look for someone that has what you want. She had it. She was 5'8", long blonde hair like me, and she wasn't fat. And I asked her to be my sponsor. So I spent about five, six years in the rooms of not eating what I thought were my alcoholic foods then, sugar and flour. I didn't sponsor. I didn't do anything past step five. I did a handful of amends, which were like a drive-by shooting. Kathy Joe, press star one, please. 
did you lose me? Oh, the the wanting the wanting the wanting of not wanting. We to hear you, Kevin Joe. Continue. Okay, the wanting of not of wanting to not be a fat left, and eventually I left the rooms, and I left the rooms for twenty one years. I came back for a handful of um, I don't even know what to call it, but you know, quick um, matinees. <laughs> And in those times, most often I was looking for someone that could manage sugar that had lost 100 pounds. But I did not want to do this. And in 2012, I ended up going to a food program. I was at a bottom then. My marriage was in shambles. I had high blood pressure, plantar fasciitis. I got headaches all the time. I was losing jobs. My relationships were a mess. I had TMJ so bad that two of my teeth fell out from the grinding. And I want to say the unhappiness that I had. And I came in, and again, I thought, you know, get off sugar, get off white flour, and show up to meetings and I'll be okay. But I was still ingesting some of my alcoholic foods, and I was not living in the solution of this program. And there was somebody that I would call every once in a while when I felt like my life was a hot mess. Leah used those words earlier today. And she would always say things that were so strong to me that I would hang up the phone thinking, why is she so abrupt? One of the last times I called her when my life was a hot mess, I told her I think I figured out what my food plan should be. I had done willow. I had done so many different plans. I was constantly looking for a food plan to lose weight. I would. I had lost maybe 50, 60 pounds by um, starting to do things differently in OA, but I was still on that hamster wheel of spinning and desperation and still not wanting to surrender. And she said to me, Kathy Joe, once you think you have it licked. And I kept thinking, I have it licked because now I'm going to do it this way, which I'm going to add to that. Now I'm going to do it my way again. It was always my way. The plan was always my way. And I said this when I did a special edition a few years ago, but there's a saying, when you're in recovery or when you're in the rooms of OA, your addict is doing a push-up in the parking lot or is doing push-ups in the parking lot. I want to say when you're in the disease and you're not in the rooms or you're not in the solution, your God also is doing push-ups. So when I came back finally and was willing to surrender completely and let go of all my alcoholic foods, and be willing to do all these steps that are outlined for us. And now I'm going to hop on to page 24 because that's where I'm sharing. So we need to hit bottom. It's in there twice in exact words of must hit bottom. And that um, we need to adopt attitudes and actions that almost no alcoholic who is still drinking can dream of taking. And I was willing to do whatever it takes. In fact, those words are here 
We're ready to do anything, anything, which will lift the merciless obsession from us. And that's where I was at. And I remember when I called my first sponsor that I met in these rooms, and I said, you take people through the big book, don't you? Will you take me? Will you take me? And I believe that sentence is the most beautiful words I've ever said in my life because I was willing to do what it takes at that moment. If she told me to, you know, stand in my head as I was in the meetings every morning at 6 a.m., that's 6 a.m. in Minnesota, I was willing at that moment to do what it takes. So, and I want to say, you know, there's a saying in OA that I learned in the 80s, and it was, it's so much harder for a compulsive overeater because we have to pet the lion three times a day. I found we do not pet the lion anymore. We don't let the lion out of the cage because what we do when we figure out what is our entire abstinence and what are our bottom line food behaviors, we quit petting the lion. We need to figure out what are our alcoholic foods. And the other thing I have heard is alcoholics have it easy because they don't have to drink. They still drink. They drink orange juice. They drink water. They drink coffee. We still eat. But what we do differently is we do not eat our bottom line alcoholic foods. So I'm jumping around. I liked what Matt said about um, not having a script, I have notes, but I don't have to, I didn't write out the perfect script here, but um, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of the changes that happened since I've been working this um, program, like my hair is on fire. One of the biggest ones is, like I said, um, we all have a story that could bring us to our knees where we literally feel like our skin is being peeled off our body. And when I got here, my marriage was at a complete bottom. And my husband entered into his own two programs of addiction that were very um, devastating for me. But today, our marriage is happy. Our marriage has shifted. We have joy in our marriage. Um, about three years in after I did these steps, like outlined in the big book, I sat in my hairstylist chair, and I had been going to her for eight years. And she said, what's going on with you and your husband? You never talk about him anymore. You used to sit here for three hours and complain about him the whole time. And tears went down my face. Because not only do I not complain about my husband anymore, I literally don't think I do that anymore. I don't complain about others anymore. I don't wake up every morning with my bitch list. I don't wake up every morning with a list of people I'm mad at that I want to call 12 people about and tell them what the soccer coach or what the theater director did to my kids. I don't have that short list anymore or that long list. And I get invited to things. I used to wonder, why am I not invited? Why are they not including me? What's their problem? I get invited now because I think I'm better company. 
I don't show up negative and critical. I don't show up wanting to tell everyone what's wrong with the event that they have or share shocking stories that no one wants to hear about. I try to show up and to be more gracious and to be more of service and get in the kitchen and clean the pots and pans. Another thing I want to share is that I wake up every day unrecovered. I have times where I need to have my whole entire self in ICU because my character defects have surfaced. I still am working with God on growing in my spiritual condition every day. I don't get a pass to misbehave on an ongoing basis. Do I misbehave? Yes, I do. Do I have a way to get back and write with God and write with others? Yes, I do. So um, another thing I want to say is we don't wait to sponsor and work with others when we get well. We get well by sponsoring. I'm never going to be good enough to work with others. But God uses us. Bill W. maybe had four days of sobriety when he started to work with others. I could be wrong with that. Someone will probably correct me. But we don't wait till we're perfect. We start working with others when we are finished with step 12 and we are recovered. My sponsor, um, the second sponsor I got envisioned for you, literally the fourth day I called her, I was six minutes late. And she said, are you going to be on time tomorrow? Because if you can't be on time, I'm going to find someone else to take this slot because I need to do this work. Because if I don't do this work, I will be back in the food and I will die. This is not just, you know, a little bit of wanting to do things differently. We do this program like with vengeance. I said I ate with vengeance. We do this program with vengeance. Um, And the closing paragraph, it says, under the lash of alcoholism, we are driven to AA. We don't just show up because we were kind of struggling. We are driven to AA, and there we discover the fatal nature of our situation. We stand ready to do anything which will lift the merciless obsession from us. We're, We're trying to live. I'm 58 now. I'm going to be 59 in May. I thought I would follow my dad's footsteps. I never dreamed I would be past 50. I now believe I could be past 80. I had open heart surgery a year and a half ago. I have a trachea disease, which has required two surgeries. Yet I feel healthy as a horse. And I am so grateful to God that before I got on that table for my open heart surgery, that God took 120 pounds off of my body. Because I believe that if I hadn't had this program and worked this program and lost the weight, I would not be here today talking to you. I don't have headaches anymore. Like I said, my relationship with my husband continues to change. 
he brings me coffee in bed almost every day. Not today, because he's still in bed today. It's my turn to bring it to him. Um, I have never looked back. I would not do things different. I would not do things differently. I mean, I would in my past when I was in the disease, but the paragraph that said, who wishes to be rigorous, honest, and tolerant? Who wants to confess his faults to another and make restitution for harm done? I do. I want to live differently today because I want to be free. I want to be whole. And I want to live in the solution a day at a time with all of you. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Kathy Joe P., for your share. Thank you to all our panelists for sharing your personal insights and experience regarding step one. Much appreciated. The share ID for this morning's presentation, 16,492. That's 16492. Contact information for Amy G., Matt J.F., and Kathy Jo P. will be given at the conclusion of this recording, so stay tuned for that. But we will now transition to a question and answer segment. You can pose a question, questions only, to one of our panelists by pressing star 1 to unmute. I need your name, including the first letter of your last name. Jason K. Jason. Dara L. Dara L. Mindy R. Mindy R. Anyone else? Star one to unmute. Okay, let's just get started with Jason K. Good morning, this is Jason K. Um, do you, uh, for the panelists, and, and, and I had to tune out for a, a little bit, so I hope this wasn't addressed. Do you try to identify people as newcomers that come to you as low bottoms or high bottoms, or, or, or do, you, do you use this information that Bill talks about in this chapter to understand where a sponsee is, and do you look at different sponsees and work them through the steps? Differently, for instance, uh, a more uh, low bottom working quickly, a higher bottom working less quickly. Jason, anyone in particular you're posing the question to? Whoever it strikes, no, no one in particular. Okay. This is Matt J.F. I'll take a stab. Please go ahead. Thanks for the question, Jason. Um, I I don't do that in any kind of deliberate, thoughtful, specific way. I do, when I start working with a sponsee, um, as Amy mentioned, I, I try and get a sense of what their history is with the disease. Um, but what I've found is that um, it, it, is that in working the steps, it's it's revealed, and and the the reason for that is that for someone who has a low bottom and has hit it, but 
but isn't willing or isn't ready or isn't able, they're not going to progress through the steps most likely. And for someone who has a high bottom and hasn't hit it, but is ready, willing, and able, they will. And um, I, I do make it a point to tell new sponsees, um, look, if all you need is a clear food plan from a nutritionist to eat healthier and be at a healthier weight, and your life is okay, it's manageable, that's awesome. But that's not me. That's not like I did. I wouldn't need this program if that was me. Um, and if no amount of any of those things is going to lead to your life not being a horrible, unmanageable mess, you are like me. And I needed this program. So if you want what I have, you have to do what I did. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's that's what came to mind. Thank you, Jason K, for the question. Next up, Dara L. Yes, thank you so much, Leah, for your service, and thank you all for amazing, amazing presentations. Um, just so rich. I this is a, a weird question, Matt, but at one point you mentioned that your brown eyes would come into the story later, and I just. I'm just curious about about that, so I don't know if you could speak to what you had intended to say about that. Sure. Uh, yeah. <laughs> kind of forgot about that, So, because it usually does. So here's how that um, is relevant to my story uh, and my step one experience. Uh, I needed a power greater than human to solve my problem. But it's also not a problem any more than my brown eyes are. And the reason that I needed that, that power greater than human to solve that problem is that no human power created that problem. Speaking only for myself, no condition, event, person in my life made me a compulsive overeater. I was born a compulsive overeater the same way I was born with brown eyes. And no amount of self-will, effort, discipline, diets, exercise, attitude adjustments, therapy was ever going to change that fundamental fact of my nature any more than it's going to change my brown eyes. And, and there's no, for me, there's no moral failing in having brown eyes or being a compulsive overeater. I didn't choose this. Who would choose this? I was made this way. And just admitting that simple, it's an attribute of me. It's not a failing and it's not a bad thing. It's just true. It was only by admitting that I was an addict that I realized what a sense of relief it was to admit that I was an addict. Because it's just a simple fact. And the only way that I was ever going to recover was by recognizing I was never going to recover. It was only going to be in partnership with a higher power that I was going to recover. So that's what—that's how it would become relevant. I just didn't say it. Thank you for asking. Thank you, Dara L. Mindy R. Your turn. Hi. Good morning, everybody. Thank you for sharing. Um, thank you for your service. And I got so much out of this. I am. I am on step one. And working through it exactly what you um 
you all were talking about today. And um, my question is um, just if maybe you all three could just give your suggestion when newcomers or old-timers are coming back from relapse or new to the program and need to get the first three days or the first week um, or to get clean and not have that phenomenon of craving the effect, what do you suggest to do when you're restless, irritable, and discontented? So um, I can take a crack at that, Leah. Please do. So to me, if someone is in active compulsive eating, it doesn't matter if they're coming back or they're new, they've been around. The, the program to me, uh, in my humble opinion, is still the program. The instructions are still the instructions, which is that we have to put the food down and then begin the process of working the 12 steps. But if, if, if the person is, you know, what we have to drill down on uh, is the food plan and to make sure that the allergic substances are not being eaten. I mean, I'm kind of a check the boxes kind of girl. So the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to ask questions about uh, making sure that there is nothing triggering them uh, physically and make sure that I understand and in accountability as a sponsor to the sponsee about what the food plan is and understanding it and helping them understand what that is. And then we begin that process of going through the big book and the steps. Um, and then in the meantime, in those early days, I mean, this is a physical allergy. We will withdraw. And, it, and what has to happen is the use of the tools. They say that we can be stark raving absent on the tools, but we can't work the steps without the tools. And I believe that wholeheartedly because then that is where the we of the program comes, you know, comes to the fore where I am asking sponsees to make phone calls, to attend meetings, because they can't talk program to, the self, to themselves. I can't, as a newcomer, I couldn't do that. I just, I just had my twisted thinking and my warped thinking. So my connection was via the phone, via literature, via meetings. So I ask sponsees to make sure that they are well connected into the program while we are going through the steps, especially in early recovery. Well, I mean, I still do it today, but it's very, very important that I am uh, immersing myself in programs especially for those first three or four days to get things going. But there has to be a willingness and a choice to put the food down and work the steps and use the rest of the tools in that early state, in those early stages, either coming back from relapse or for a person just getting started to understand what abstinence is and isn't to make sure that there's no allergic substances and to use the tools of the program while we are working the steps. I hope that helps. Thank you, Amy. Any other panelists wanted to respond as well, or shall we move on? I'll jump in, Leah. Kathy okay. Jopi, mm -hmm. recovered in Minnesota. And, um, yeah, I think it's vital that we are abstinent. That's the very first thing, and that we work with a nutritionist who helps us figure out um, how much we should eat and what out of what group we should eat. So that's the number one thing. And then, yeah, we are going to get disturbed. I mean, we're, we're letting go of the things that took the edge off for years and years and years. And so we do need help in the beginning getting through. And to be honest with you, it's no different today. I still need help when, um, yeah, I still need help. My God takes the edge off now. 
And what I do is I call people to get to a place where I can reconnect with God. So when I was new, about six weeks in, I was very disturbed. And I called a fellow and I started to tell her why I was upset and how my day was not going the way it should be going, which including hitting a car in a parking lot on my daughter's birthday. Um, And the fellow interrupted me. And she said, Kathy Joe." I invite you, when you call fellows, rather than telling everything that's going wrong in your day, ask them how God is working in their life. So what I would recommend in the beginning is calling people and listening to them sharing their experience, strength, and hope, and how God is working in their life today. What promise is working in your life today? Because talking about our problems, in my opinion, is not going to get me anywhere. But hearing you tell me how God is working in your life today is going to help me immensely. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mindy Thanks. R., for the question. I'm sorry, Matt. Yeah, can, I, can I jump of in for course. a second, too? Please do so. Um, so I will often tell sponsees early, um, go to the Vision website. Just pick 20 names and numbers and put them in your phone. Put them in a list or as contacts. If you feel like you're going to pick up, call me. If I don't answer, text me and say, I'm afraid I'm going to pick up. And if I don't call you back, immediately start calling people. Don't do it with an attitude of, please help me. Do it with an attitude of, how can I help you? Because my belief is that the same circuits that that are about, in my mind, about, like, I need help, food will help me, is the same circuitry that's consumed by helping someone else. So just swap it out. And I will add, a lot, I, I, I hear a lot, and I've heard a lot of people say that they're scared to call people. I hated calling people. I still don't particularly enjoy it. What does that matter? I want to recover, full stop. If I ever allow my hesitance, to, my hesitation at calling someone, my discomfort with calling someone to stand between me and recovery, I'm doomed. So, like, that's nice. It's uncomfortable. You know what else is really uncomfortable? Hating myself every day. So that's my counsel to sponsors. Thank you panelists, and thank you, Mindy R., for the question. We have time for a few more questions. Star one to unmute if you'd like to pose one. Deanna P. Deanna P. Penny C. Gail B. Gail B. Pete B. And Pete B., okay. We got you. Mary. We're going to take these four, and we'll see where we're at. Okay, Deanna P., go ahead with your question, please. Hi, good morning. Can I be heard? I hear you. Thank you, Leah, for your service, and thank you, panelists, for um, some very valuable information um, on steps uh, one from the 12 and 12, and this question is for any of the panelists. Um, Because I'm pretty new to recovery and pretty new to sponsoring, I am coming up uh, sometimes with, like, uh, what do I do now? Um, When a sponsee... um, has two or three slips, setbacks, 
relapses, I don't know what you want to call it, uh, early on in program, um, and they're a few steps in, or say, let's say they've done four and five, and they um, pick up, um, how do you deal with that? Do you go back to one and keep them there for a while? Do you go back and get them quickly back to the, where they were? Um, yeah, that's my question. Thanks. Hi, it's Amy. I'll address. Go right ahead, Amy. Okay. Um, I I think that it says, again, John Bollicorn, we're just talking about that today, is our best advocate. To me, the disease always reveals itself. If I have a sponsee that is continuing um, to slip or relapse, they're both, they're both one and the same, really, that they're picking up the food, they're making it, you know, a decision to relapse. For me, I feel like it's not my job. Let me backtrack because I wanted to answer that first question. I was muted somehow. It's not my job to decide what my sponsee's bottom is or whatever. If they come to me and they say they're ready, then I'm going to make sure that I ask those questions that they ask themselves to make the decision for themselves whether or not they're powerless and whether they have the twofold nature of the disease whether their history reveals that, and if they do have that powerlessness, do they believe that they lack the power and that they need a power greater than themselves? If there's continuing slippage going on, to me, that is a spiritual disconnect. There's a spiritual disconnect that says somehow, some way, this great obsession is still prevalent in this sponsee's life, that somehow they can control their eating and um, that admission of powerlessness. Uh, so what we would do is, sure, we would go back to one. We would be doing steps two and three, a firm uh, delving into the um, spiritual aspect, the spiritual malady in the mental obsession. Um, and I would be taking them to steps one, two, and three in the AA 12 and 12, as well as we agnostics in the big book, because lack of power is ultimately our dilemma. The crux of the problem is our thinking, and our lack of power is our dilemma. So if someone is relapsing, there's a, there's something going on around that. I hope that helps. Thank you, Deanna P., for your question. Penny C., you're up. Okay, thank you, Leah, and thank you to the three panelists. Uh, I was, I was um, hanging on, on most words that you said. I have a... Um, question which comes from uh, or comment I'm going to ask you to comment comes from actually page 68 in uh, the AA 12 and 12 and it's under step six but it talks about step one it says only step one where we made the hundred percent admission we were powerless over alcohol can be practiced with absolute perfection and I'm wondering if any of the panelists um, has any comment on that sentence Which panelists would like to respond? This is Matt J.F. I have a quick answer. Okay. Um, my quick answer is uh, I'm an addict, full stop. Born an addict, going to die an addict. That's never changing. Um, for me, taking step one perfectly means that. 
I am an addict. I'm powerless over that. I'm never going to solve that problem. It's not a problem to be solved or one that I can solve. It's only through working the steps in partnership with a higher power that that's ever going to happen. Um, that do, but perfectly to me doesn't mean once and for all time. I have to keep reminding myself a thousand times every day. And that's what my footwork is about. My footwork is about a, it's a series of practices that helps me reconnect to that simple fact multiple times per day when my self will, will rears up to remember, oh, right, this is not my thing. So I pass. Thank you for the question, Penny C. Gail B, star one to unmute. Hello, panelists. My name is Gail B, a compulsive overeater. Thank you for all your, um, each one of you I got something out of. I have a question for Matt J.F. Um, you said you made a list of food and then you stopped eating it. Um, could you speak a little bit more on that? Uh if I knew how to tell you how it happened, I'd write a book and retire. I don't. Um, the the only thing I know how to, and it's not that I made the list and stopped eating those foods. It's that uh-huh. Sunday night I made the list, and Monday morning I woke up as a person who did not eat those foods anymore. I didn't stop myself from doing it, didn't restrict myself. I'm not saying I never had cravings. I'm not saying it was never painful or annoying. It was just not negotiable. It was not, it was not like, well, I'm not going to eat these foods. Because if it's I'm not going to eat these foods, I'm going to eat the foods. It had to be, this is just no longer part of who I am. And, uh, and the only way that could happen was by the grace of God. Okay, thank you. Thanks for the question, Gail B. Pete B., your turn. Thank you, Leia. Thanks for your service. And thanks to the rock star panelists. Uh, great, great presentation. Uh, my name is Pete B. I'm a compulsive overeater recovered today by God's grace and mercy. Quick question. Page 30 in the big book talks about the first step in recovery. You guys read about step one. Do you, do you believe that there's a difference in the first step of recovery in recovery and step one? Rock star panelist, who's going to respond? I'm not sure. I'm. I, I'm not sure. I understand the question. I know you're talking about the quote that I read about that uh, the delusion has to be or presently maybe has to be smashed. You're asking if there's a difference between that conclusion and the admission of powerlessness. Just want to clarify or ask you to. Clarify. I'm asking. I'm asking if you believe that there's a difference in the first step in recovery, which is spelled out on page 30 in the big book. And step one. This is Matt JF. Um, The only thing that comes to mind is to think that step one is a sentence. We made up we were powerless over food that our lives have become unmanageable. 
but step one is just a sentence until I do it. So for me, the difference is um, between intellectual and real, between academic and reality. And, um, and, and that it's only by experiencing that and sharing the experience of it that I'm truly living the steps. Step one is a sentence on a page otherwise. Okay. I'd love to hear what the others have to say. Well, I think just, I'm not sure if there is a difference so much as the step one adds that our lives have become unmanageable. I mean, here it's saying the delusion that we are like other people has to be smashed and that we have to concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. I mean, I know for me, I could concede to being a compulsive overeater, but I could easily say, well, my life's not unmanageable just in this one area. I mean, I don't, so to me, step one elaborates or encompasses what is read on, what is written on page 30 to another degree. I think it takes it to another level that says, I'm conceding to my innermost self that I am powerless over food, but that my life is also unmanageable. So I think he's leaving no wiggle room by putting it in the way he does in step one versus what's written on page 30. That's my two cents. Thank you, panelists. Thanks, Pete B., for that question. Thank you to our panelists this morning, Amy G., Matt J. F., and Kathy Joe P. Thank you for giving so much of yourselves, participating in this presentation, and bringing to life step one from the AA 12 and 12. Much appreciated. Could you share give the share? Share ID for today, 16,492. That's 16492. And we're going to close from page 164, which is found in a chapter entitled A Vision for You. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is the great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then.